You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bosevich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bose Nose Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bosevich. And now, here's Jay. And good afternoon. And it's another smoky day in the Pacific Northwest. Hot and smoky, that's the way we like our August um, here in the Pacific Northwest. You're listening to the Bose Nose Show, and I'm your host, Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich, and we're coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira, Oregon, and uh, this show is really about you, and I hopefully today I get people to call in because, yes, puppy power. I have a new puppy I got a couple days ago. And anyone that has like a seven, eight-week, nine-week-old puppy understands when you first get them, they do not sleep through the night. In fact, getting them to go to sleep, keeping them asleep, keeping them from howling, all that good stuff, I am sleep-deprived. So I'm, I'm not as well-prepared for the Bose Nose Show as I normally am. So I'm hoping you'll call in at 646-721-9887. And just press one that lets Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire, know that you want to get in on the conversation. And maybe you can help me get through this hour uh, and help me uh, not have to carry the whole thing on my own with this lack of sleep and lack of preparation. And if you don't call in, I might end up talking about the puppy during the show, which is a beautiful little standard poodle boy, little brown chocolate drop that he is. Oh, he's so fuzzy. Uh, but he's really cute. Um, but again, the number, if you want to get in on the show, is 646-721-9887, and just press 1. And if you hear me cough a little bit during the Bose Nose Show, air quality is starting to get a little bit on the moderate range here in Lane County. We're not as bad as southern Oregon, which is just, there's some areas where you shouldn't even be outside. <clears throat> and if you're inside, you should have HEPA filters running. Um it's just really bad down there, really hurting the uh, tourism economy, you know, particularly the Rogue Valley and all those places that, you know, are just known as summer playgrounds. And there are lots of companies that this is their time that they go into the black. You know, the, the whole, yeah, people may not remember why Black Friday is named Black Friday. That was because that was the day retailers usually ran in the red most of the year um, and went into the black the Friday after Thanksgiving with all the Christmas shopping starting. And uh, that's really, you know, when you think about the, all these, you know, the um, trail outfitters, the, the people that run river tours, uh, all those various um, tourism related businesses, the summer months in, in that area are really their high season and the time they go into the black and they're really being hurt by the smoke. Um, so if you do hear me coughing, that might be why. 
you might also be coughing just because I'm probably on the edge of getting sick from being sleep deprived because uh, of the new puppy. Puppy power, right? Uh, uh, that was pretty good, Robin. You, you almost had me laughing at the start of the show instead of starting my show. So I got a couple things I want to talk about today. And I thought we'd start out with supported housing because there was an article in this morning's Register Guard right on the front page there about a local tour highlighting supported housing. And uh, I wasn't involved in setting up the tour or anything like that. But what was interesting is a couple of the projects they, they got involved with actually had connections through to Lane County uh, in some shape, manner, or form. And in some ways, like the, uh, the first project they toured with the uh, sponsors there, uh, the Oaks at 14th, um, I was actually involved in multiple ways because that kind of crosses over from housing folks to also um, our, our uh, public safety system. And I've actually um, worked through the budget committee of public safety coordinating council to um, secure funds for that project and to keep it running. Uh, really great project that houses folks um, uh, post-prison um, and helps them transition out into uh, the community uh, in a way that really reduces their recidivism and rearrest rate a lot. You know, what's really tough is a lot of people come out of prison um, on some, you know, you know, property crime type related stuff, not violent crime. Um, but it's really difficult to get housing. And it's difficult to get a job because you've got a criminal record and all that stuff. And you also might not have the best skills, which is why you ended up in prison in the first place. You might have some secondary issues with, you know, behavioral health and uh, maybe even, ha you know, a continuing uh, uh, trying to stay sober, uh, ha having a previous addiction issue or something like that. And the whole point of supported housing is to get folks in that have barriers to housing into some lower barrier housing. In this case, the barrier is a criminal record. <laughs> Um, and get them into housing and then supply them with support services and case management that, that deals with trying to get to resolve those barriers, whatever they are. And uh, we, uh, I've talked previously on the Bose Nose show about our FUSE project, the Frequent User System Engagement Project um, pilot we ran last year that we tried to get our, our heaviest users of emergency services and police services and jail bookings and whatever else, we kind of developed a top uh, 100 list of um, matching up a bunch of agency records. And we went after those people, tried to contact them, and then bring them into housing with intensive case management. And we figured out that before that, service, they were costing the county about $35,000 a year, or the public, I should say, about $35,000 a year in ER room visits that are not paid for under insurance, in EMT call outs, um, you know, from the, the fire services uh, for medical emergencies on the street or whatever, uh, to uh, getting arrested and the police response to booking in at the jail, to spending nights at the jail, all that stuff costs the public money in one way or the other. It was costing us about 
about 35,000 a year to let those folks continue to be chronically homeless. So we brought them in this low barrier housing, connected them with services, and we were able to do that for about $14,000 a year, a net savings of about $21,000 a year. And ultimately, you hope to transition those guys out, or, you know, guys and gals out to some other form of housing that's even less expensive with, you know, and uh, having dealt with some of their issues. And ultimately, you hope some of those folks get back to being productive citizens and aren't costing the taxpayers anything. Um, but it's a much more permanent style of a solution. And this tour kind of went through a couple different versions of supported housing. Um, but the, 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 the key is not just supplying a place for people to sleep, but, but connecting that place to sleep with services and case management that starts dealing with why don't you have housing in the first place, why you're having barriers to getting um, permanent and, and reliable housing. And that's really um, what that's all about. And it's really a model that is now probably the, the best model we have to permanently addressing homelessness in the most cost-effective manner. And you know, we show, we've shown with our FUSE pilot program just how significant the savings can be to actually bring these folks in, start working on all their issues, whether it's a mental health issue, an addiction issue, um, you know, all sorts of various issues why people end up on the street and get them into the services and connected. Um, you know, say it's a veteran, getting them the benefits that they're actually due. It's surprising sometimes how we'll find um, veterans that aren't receiving their actual full benefits that are on the street, you know, one of the reasons they haven't gotten the full benefits is their inability to apply for some other um, reason, like maybe a drug addiction or something like that. But getting them through that process and getting them the ability to access veterans benefits sometimes is enough to get them off the street and find them uh, permanent housing. So it's just, it that's, that's the real key is, is it's not just the housing, it's the supported housing. And as supported services and case management comes with it. And I thought the guard, you know, wrote a pretty nice article, even though it was sort of brief, uh, going through a couple programs that provide that in the local area. And of course, Lane County's looking at um, developing through uh, Homes for Good, uh, which used to be the, the housing authority uh, and community services of Lane County, uh, known as HACSA, uh, is the way people remember it, but Homes for Good, developing that, um, what's called a Housing First project right there across from Autzen Stadium, but next door to our behavioral health building. So, you know, there's that connection, the supportive services that we can uh, really address some of those issues. So, good article in the Guard. Uh, I really uh, thought they did a nice job. It kind of brings that whole issue of um, homelessness um, and just generally uh, trying to get people uh, on the straight and narrow and self-supportive. You know, it's the old old story about you know giving a man a fish he eats for a day, teach him to fish, and he eats the rest of his life. Um, the whole thing about supported housing is teaching people to fish and not just 
giving them a fish. And I really think it's a, a, a great model that we can continue to work on here in Lane County and Oregon and across the nation. It's been really demonstrated to, to save public resources in multiple ways in other jurisdictions. And there's been actual randomly controlled test studies and, and objective studies on the programs in other cities. And they've all basically shown economically it's a win for the community to provide this kind of housing because the way it changes people's lives and the way it prevents costs um, in other systems like emergency rooms, uh, police services, jail beds, even prison beds ultimately, um, which is the most expensive way to house people is in, in a jail or in a prison. Um, so it's kind of, I want to talk a little bit about supported housing. And I also mentioned in my Facebook post, I also might want to talk about pickleball. Everyone's like, pickleball? Yeah, the Register Guard actually had a front page article about it, I think a couple, about a week or two ago. Um, it's gotten really popular, particularly amongst some of us aging baby boomers that realize that racquetball and tennis are, as we get up to about age 55 to 60, start becoming um, injury makers for us as we forget how old we're getting and try and still uh, sprint after a ball um, like we used to when we were 25. And next thing you know, we're tearing ligaments and spraining ankles and whatever else and uh, really causing a lot of injuries where pickleball is a little bit more combined and a little bit more about um, finesse and playing the game and all that. Uh, still a lot of motion involved. A lot of reaching, a lot of you know twisting and everything else that gets good exercise. So it's a, it, it movement-wise, it's really good for people. Um, and it's on a lot smaller courts, so it doesn't take up the room that racquetball and um, tennis does. And so it's kind of an interesting sport that, that actually is becoming popular enough that there's actually a U.S. Um, amateur pickleball association that's now running nationwide tournaments and a national championship that was actually on um, I think ESPN or some uh, one of the cable sports channels uh, uh, broadcast nationally. And you can actually YouTube uh, pickleball videos of, you know, pickleball games. And you know, when it's a it, quote, the high level folks playing, it's, it's pretty fast moving and intense looking um, from what I can tell, but, the reason it came up for me is last week I was talking about how, and the week before how we were going out and talking to folks about our parts master plan. And I attended the meeting here in Benita, the first one in Benita uh, that was on a pretty warm afternoon in an air conditioned community center. Um, still a bunch of people came out for that. And a lot of discussion was about the parks around Fern Ridge Lake, which you would expect for the Veneta area. But got down to the Florence um, meeting, and that was the last of the six meetings we held around the county. And there were a bunch of folks there to actually ask us about trying to provide some pickleball facilities. Because <laughs> apparently pickleball is really popular in the Florence area, but there's no... Um, dedicated pickleball courts, and uh, particularly they're looking for maybe um, 
some that might have a roof on them and maybe even some indoor courts ultimately and kind of not quite up the uh, county's alley to be developing those kind of recreation facilities because sort of county parks one of our functions is purely as a parks and open space um, kind of uh, park system we don't really do the and rec part um, at all it's really not part of our current mission although we do have some of that um, and mostly we have that supplied through partners usually like nonprofits like um, uh, friends of Mount Pisgah and the Mount Pisgah Arboretum that um, do educational tours and hikes and stuff at, at the, our um, Howard Buford uh, natural area there that most people refer to as Mount Pisgah Park um, and uh, you know and we have things like the uh, for the Elmira Babe Ruth League that actually maintains and runs the uh, baseball field at our Perkins Peninsula Park we don't really necessarily do any of that in our park system too much so I kind of um, was you know hoping they could maybe focus a little bit more on the municipal park system maybe to provide some of that um, pickleball courts um, but we'll We'll look for an opportunity maybe to um, partner with the pickleball folks, but it's kind of interesting. You just never know what's going to come up as a county commissioner or when you get to a public meeting and you're asking for public input. And uh, there are whole, must have been uh, 30 people there that were there specifically to promote pickleball and, and maybe the ability for county uh, parks properties to maybe be utilized for pickleball in the Florence area because there's a shortage of pickleball courts. <laughs> and it was, it was interesting because they kind of had one leader and it was a guy that um, has taught PE as a career. I think he's retired now. Um, I think he was well into his 60s and he looked like he was about 40, really fit. Um, and he kind of stood up and spoke for the whole group. And he could have been a motivational speaker or something like that. The guy was just jazzed talking about pickleball and, and all the benefits of pickleball and how popular it is and how people actually travel to play pickleball and it actually could become part of a tourism um, effort. You know, if there was a fair amount of pickleball courts and what was fascinating to me is as I'm sitting there listening to everything about pickleball at that meeting, I'm thinking, Hmm, I just sat in a meeting with some folks from the city of Springfield and Travel Lane County and a few other interested parties talking about the new indoor track facility they want to site in the uh, Glenwood uh, area. And one of the things they're, they'd like to look at is possibly the Lane County property that our transfer station's at. And they were showing me their proposed plans for this indoor track facility, which was going to have hydraulically raised and lowered bank track so they could lower it and then lay temporary floor down and do court sports in there and what they showed me was it could lay out to be i think it was like four basketball courts uh to play tournaments and still maintain the seating that they have at the mezzanine level to watch the indoor track so there'd actually be seating to be able to watch these these multiple games going on at the same time in a tournament arrangement. It also showed how you could break it up into so many volleyball courts and 24 
pickleball courts could fit in this footprint or something like that. And I, so as they're talking about how popular pickleball is and people will travel to tournaments and all that stuff, I'm thinking about this indoor track facility in Glenwood, popular, and they can put that many courts in there and there's seating to watch. You know, maybe one day if we get this indoor track facility um, realized and built in Glenwood, that Springfield will be hosting the national or some international pickleball championship right here in Lane County, just as we're going to host the world track and field championships here in Lane County. So uh, kind of exciting sports tourism. It actually is a major piece of Lane County's tourism economy. Uh, and anytime you want to hear about that, you know, the folks at Travel Lane can tell you about it. But, um, you know, it was really great also to hear that we were going to get the, um, the Olympic trials back here in 2020. Um, because that was a significant uh, input, I think some 30-some million or something that came in the local economy the last time we hosted the Olympic trials uh, for that several-day event. So um, really, it's amazing how much economic benefit can be driven off of sporting events. And, you know, you gotta got to kind of cast a wide net from pickleball to track and field to bicycle touring to you know the ducks football games think about how many people travel into lane county to attend participate or watch you know some kind of sporting event it just it, it's a surprisingly large part of lane county's um, tourism economy so interesting that you know, parts master plan turns into pickleball, which reminds me of this whole idea of an indoor track and field facility. Um, kind of things are interconnected in certain ways uh, as you start seeing a little bit bigger picture. It's one of the interesting things about being a county commissioner is I'm exposed to so many small pieces of so many other programs and efforts that sometimes I get to sit back and see a little bit of the bigger picture. And it's it's really um, kind of exciting. You know, it's one of the exciting parts about being a Lane County Commissioner. But you do get some kind of strange calls sometimes and, uh, you know, and get some strange input at public meetings. And, you know, talking about our parts master plan, I was expecting people maybe to come in in the Florence area and talk about, you know, maybe some of our boat ramps on the Sayuslaw River or the North Fork of Sayuslaw or you know some of our boat ramps at the lakes like Munsell Lake or um, our, our West Lake boat ramp on Silkoots Lake. Um, nope, they came in to talk about pickleball. <laughs> so if you wanna to talk to me about pickleball or something else on the Bose Nose Show, don't forget you can call us at 646-721-9887. Just press one, lets us know you wanna uh, ask a question or make a comment or just generally blather on here like I do on the Bose Nose Show. And uh, we'll get you on as soon as we can. Again, that's 646-721-9887. Just press one and that uh, lets us know you want to talk on the Bose Nose Show with your host, Jay Bozovich, West Lane County Commissioner. And we come to you live every Wednesday at four o'clock, but we also you know, you can listen to us anytime by going to the KRBN Internet News Talk 
radio uh, Facebook page. You can go back and, and click on any of the links to the show. We're also live on Facebook through our Facebook page. You can also email us at talk at KRBN, uh, and you know you can also message us on Facebook. There's all sorts of ways to suggest topics, suggest guests for the Bose Nose Show, ask me a question that I can answer on the air. Um, just give me a call, and, and we'll have a conversation. So we started something a few weeks back on the Bosnos show, and that is, you know, kind of our what were they thinking segment of the Bosnos show. And it's kind of where we kind of take a little bit of a jab at people sometimes for some of the craziness that happens. Sometimes it's government craziness. Some of it's, you know, something that's just in the news or whatever else. And I have a couple things for what were we thinking. And one's kind of uh, in jest and, and, and a little bit on this, you know, somewhat serious side, but silly side, and one's very serious, actually. So I'm going to start with the, the, the one that is kind of humorous to me. The Oregon Government Ethics Commission. You know, first of all, yes, be surprised, Oregon actually has an ethics commission. <laughs> so after you finish chuckling about the idea of government ethics in Oregon, um, you can remember that they actually found the former first girlfriend, um, Sylvia Hayes, uh, Governor Kitzhopper's um, uh, uh, live-in uh, partner, um, guilty of violating several pieces of government ethics laws, and particularly uh, several counts of enriching herself, um, using her position to enrich herself, which you're not supposed to do, uh, you know, with with position in the government. And uh, the news came out today that they were pausing their negotiations with Sylvia Hayes to consult with the courts about what, how much further they could go in that negotiation because she's currently filed for bankruptcy and how that impacts their negotiations. And what I can't understand is what were they thinking when they entered into negotiations with her? You know, all your job as the ethics commission is to investigate a complaint, determine if there's been a violation. If there's been a violation, determine the appropriate fine and, and sanctions and issue those sanctions. What is there to negotiate? with Sylvia Hayes. You found violations, determine the appropriate fines or whatever, issue those fines, and let the bankruptcy court and her figure out how it gets paid. What are you thinking negotiating with her? And why does she get to negotiate with you and anyone else that's had to deal with the government ethics commission doesn't get to negotiate their fines and stuff? I mean, I don't remember you know, Sid Lichen being offered an opportunity when he got fined by the Ethics Commission over his reporting um, issues around um, his that $2,000 that his campaign spent on a poll that went to his mother that never got done and all that stuff. I don't remember, you know, an offer there. Why is, why is Sylvia Hayes being negotiated with? What are you thinking, folks on the Government Ethics Commission? Don't negotiate, issue the fine, step away. That's your job. 
get on to the next thing. And maybe you might be able to get the investigation done in enough time that the statute of limitations doesn't run out on you like the one with Rob Handy did. It, 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 it just amazes me sometimes what comes out of our government ethics commission and uh, negotiating with somebody that was found to have violated the ethics laws seems a little strange <laughs> after the fact. Usually the negotiation happens before you make the finding so that they can plead to a certain violation and agree guilt or something like that. Not after you found them guilty and then you're negotiating how much fines they're going to pay. Um, I think, you know, what were you thinking, Oregon Government Ethics Commission? So that's my first, what were they thinking uh, for this week? My second one's a little bit more serious, and that's in that there's been two incidences fairly recently up in Junction City of folks tagging buildings with racial um, slurs and even uh, Nazi symbols. And then just yesterday, um, there's been an abandoned vehicle outside of Florence uh, in unincorporated Lane County on Hasita Beach Road for a while that's on private property, so it's not where the county can tow it, um, it but it's just off of a roadway. And somebody finally, um, you know, the car has been slowly being vandalized a little bit as, as it sat there, and somebody painted a racial slur um, basically kill and the N-word um, in bright pink uh, on this vehicle, right right where it's, everybody drives by it on the way to Driftwood Shores at a major tourism destination in Lane County. Um, and I what I can't understand is, what are you thinking that you're still willing to go out and spray paint racial slurs in today's society, you know, how can you even think, you know, that, you know, you know, in terms of race nowadays in some ways, you know, how could you even think that a race is inferior and should be insulted as a group or that, um, you know, one race is superior than another instead of dealing with folks as individuals on the, you know, the content of their character and trying to group people together under some you know, very um, sometimes arbitrary grouping. You know, take for the term the term Hispanic, that covers everything from folks from Puerto to folks from Mexico to folks from uh, Colombia. You know, not a whole lot of commonality there. You know, to you know, it, it just you know that that term. Um, and trying to group people under that term is really um, not dealing with people's individuals. And then, you know, take a, 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 even the term, you know, black or African-American uh, is really, you know, trying to group people under those is also very difficult. You know, are you talking about somebody that is from uh, Nigeria or are you talking about somebody that, you know, had, had uh, uh, you know, been in the Caribbean, you know, family uh, came from the Caribbean for a long time, or somebody that has been in, you know, family has been in um, the Northeast for quite a long time. You know, it, it's, you know, people don't, 
to, to try and think in those terms just boggles my mind. You know, what are you thinking that, that you know, you, you, you decided, you know, you and you and your buddy or something, you know, call, you know, got, you know, say, hey, just what do you think we go out tonight and we spray paint some racial slurs on something? You know, what, where does that thinking come from? How can you know, it boggles my mind how anyone can today, knowing what we know about how similar our, our DNA is between races, you know, is virtually indistinct, um, and the fact that there's so much variation, and looking at you know, you know what people have achieved out of all cultures and races on our planet, how can you continue to not to not be able to look at people as individuals instead of a member of a arbitrary group, uh, either based on the skin color or based on a language spoken, um, a region they're from. Uh, you know, it just, it, it, I just can't understand it. And I can't understand how anyone can tolerate that style of thinking when they run up against it. Um, it just really should not exist in today's world. And it amazes me when it rears its ugly head. I guess I should understand it because there is some, you know, psychological tribalism that goes back uh, in in mankind where we want to group ourselves by like groups and, and pit ourselves, us against them. And, you know, one of the ways you do that is by demonizing them and, um, so there is some natural instinct there, but you would think our society had risen above that by 2018. But here we are in Lane County, two recent incidents of racist graffiti in Junction City. Now we've got one basically, you know, almost in Florence down there on the coast. Um, and it just, it's, makes me shake my head and it depresses me somewhat that there's still that kind of um, thinking in this world today that you that folks can't see beyond that and judge people as individuals and deal with them as individuals you know it's something i talked about when we get about when we start talking politics and how politics have gotten so divisive and difficult for people to talk to each other one of the ways I've said that that's become that way is the is is the identity politics where you try and get people to identify with a group and then you set up us versus them style politics of the group and the group can be you know kind of arbitrary whether it's the elderly that you're trying to set up to hate a group because they might do something that, you know that would have impact the elderly's social security or whether it's you know, um, moms that are the group you're trying to to, to segregate and, and dislike some political entity because they might do something that impacts, you know, kids and moms or something like that. It, it, in this case, it's idiots out there with spray paint cans that have decided they're going to identify people by, you know, arbitrary racial groups um, and then actually um, get out there and uh, insult them with the this graffiti which just you know amazes me it still happens 
you know, I can, you know, it just seems like, why? Why is that still happening in this world? And why can't people get past that? So that that's my second, what were they thinking? The person that actually pulled that spray can out and spray painted that car in Florence uh, the night before last, what were you thinking? You know, what made you want to spray that on there? But I do want to say some community member within hours that morning painted over the M word on that car. The, the kill was still there, but the M word was painted over in white to where you could not see it. So uh, bravo to that community member for stepping up and not tolerating that kind of um, rhetoric in our public space and that idiocy of thinking around um, racial identity and, and the bigotry and prejudice that comes with that. And hopefully that person that painted that white over as a, as a person like myself that likes to judge people as individuals and by the content of their character and their individual qualities um, that are internal, not external. Um, so that's kind of what I had there um, on my what were they thinking segment this week. Uh, hopefully it didn't get too serious for you. Um, in, a, in a sort of sad piece of good news, uh, I wanted to talk about something else that came up today. Um, press release came out from our sheriff's department that they had actually made an arrest in a uh, 2007 rape case that happened here in Lane County. A woman that, uh, you know, uh, got, had car trouble, somebody stopped and, and was, you know, pretending to be the Good Samaritan, uh, offered to give her a ride and ended up, um, you know, basically taking her for a ride and uh, assaulting her and raping her and then stranding her out in the country. Um, and at, at the time of the crime, uh, a sample was, was taken, but it, it didn't match anything in the, in the database and hasn't um, pinged any, you know, nothing's pinged that case um, as new samples have been collected uh, over the years. But apparently this gentleman that was uh, currently residing in Junction City um, had to give a sample for some other reason and that sample pinged that case, and now he's been arrested in that 2007 rape case and is currently lodged in Lane County Jail um, pending uh, arraignment and all that on that uh, 2007 rape charge. But it just, one, shows the power of uh, our technology nowadays to be able to go back and make that connection. Um, you know, she may not have been able to give a good description and there was enough, not enough information, you know, maybe not, you know, didn't catch the license tag on the car or the make and all that good stuff. Why that it didn't get solved in 2007, but ultimately that DNA fingerprint um, was, was available and ultimately matched and somebody's going to be brought to justice for uh, what I think is a hideous crime. And I'm really, you know, pleased um, that the Lane County Sheriff's Department was able to do that. And uh, through, you know, the, the state police um, DNA database that's run. And it just also shows the importance of 
you know, the catch up work they've been doing on processing these rape kits to get DNA into the system um, to be matched against the, the, the known DNA that's been secured and matched to, to actual identities of people. Um, so it's really uh, important we finish that work to work through that backlog of, of rape kits and uh, the state really needs to remain committed to that. It needs to provide the resources to get caught up and stay caught up processing those rape, rape kits uh, for DNA um, testing and, uh, and ultimately logging into our database and being there to be um, available to ultimately, you know, if that person's uh, arrested for something else can be as simple as a Dewey um, that gets that, that sample into the, into the system and may connect them with a past crime uh, uh, as evil as uh, rape and sexual assault are that where we might have that DNA available um, and provide justice for that victim. So kind of a good piece, good news, uh, bad news. It was bad that it took 11 years for this victim to see justice. Good news though, this guy's off the street now and hopefully there's not other uh, victims uh, out there in between then, you know, but it's just uh, sad it took that long. Happy we caught him. Oh, excuse me, I have a little yawn there. The puppy sleep deprivation syndrome is kicking in uh, <laughs> here on the Bose Nose Show. Remember, if you want to get in on the conversation and rescue me from my puppy sleep deprivation syndrome, uh, 646-721-9887. Just press one and that will let Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire, know you want to get in on the conversation. And uh, we'll get you right on the air here. Again, 646-721-9887. And you too can help Jay from suffering PSD. Yeah. Puppy sleep deprivation. Yes. Oh, uh, yeah. He's so cute, though. Gosh, he's got that you know, little puppy growl when he's playing that just, you know, melts your heart. <laughs> A little puppy bark. Yeah. Puppy? Hmm? You sure that's a puppy? Sure he's a puppy? No, that's a, that it came from the puppy. Oh, the bark and the growl? Never mind. <laughs> I was going oh. somewhere, but never mind. Okay. <laughs> okay. Never mind, Robin. <laughs> Moving right along. Moving right along, Robin. Uh, yeah, so we've got about 15 minutes left in the Bose Nose Show here. So if you want to rescue me again, you can give us a call, 646-721-9887. Just press 1 on the Bose Nose Show. If not, we might start talking about some other things. You know, we could start talking about some of the statewide ballot measures that are getting ready to appear on the ballot um, that are kind of interesting and developing some feedback in some ways. Like, you know, is it a good idea for us to pass a ballot initiative that, ban that, that preemptively bans a style of taxation? Um, 
which you know we're seeing with this effort by the um, um, Grocers Association to try and ban any possible taxes on food, like a, uh, through through a sales tax, um, preemptively. And that that you know, if anyone's ever heard of um, the the whole idea of a very broad and small sales tax where it's on everything, uh, particularly if you look at fairtax.org, um, one of the ways you keep the tax percentage very small is by not exempting anything. So preemptively exempting, starting to exempt stuff from any future um, version of taxation is kind of an, is starting to basically say whatever they do tax, the rates are going to have to be higher to actually raise the, the revenues they're trying to desire. Um, and one of the things, you know, if you look at the fair tax, they have a, um, a rebate system built in to kind of make up for what you would get taxed on essentials uh, at the basically at the poverty level to kind of make up for the fact that food might be taxed. Um, so kind of as I look at that one, you know, one of, one of the things I think about is why do we want to preemptively um, start writing tax law before we even thought about writing the tax in the first place? Um, so I might think about then um, whether I want to vote yes on that or not. So that's kind of, there's one that most people might just instinctually go, oh yeah, that sounds like a good idea. We ought to ban taxing food, but without really thinking about, um, you know, what that might do to policy in the future, should we decide to move towards sales taxes in Oregon, which has been voted down nine times. I don't see that happening. But one of the things the Grocers Association is trying to do is trying to get their particular interest industry preempted up front if we do go there in the future. And I just don't think that's necessarily um, good um, good policy to do that. You know, so it's kind of, a, you know, it, we'd be better off if you're absolutely against sales taxes or something like that than passing some kind of constitutional amendment to Oregon's constitution that says we will never have a sales tax in Oregon. You know, that's a far better form of, of policy and initiative than this particular one that's basically banning one particular or, or preempting one particular industry from a future form of taxation that's currently allowed under our constitution. So can I bring up one? Sure. What there's a trend going in Portland and um, I don't know how you or the other commissioners feel about, but what if they were thinking about putting a toll bridge or toll, toll road somewhere on the I-5, say, in between um, Beltline and uh, 105? Um, yeah, I, you know, Toll bridges are interesting things and tolls. I grew up on the East Coast, so I grew up with tolls and turnpikes. And in fact, um, I remember when the original um, access road out the Dulles Airport was built and it was a toll road and toll road tolls got pulled after a while because they paid off the bonds. 
And generally that's how the tolls were set up was to pay off a bond um, on the East Coast and the turnpikes were set up sometimes in that way um, where they paid off the, the road bonds, whatever. And sometimes the tolls booths would get pulled off after a while um, and no longer be there. Now they're going to a lot of these fast pass systems and they're actually adding tolls back in on some of the roads in the, on the East Coast. And you'll see that up in the Seattle area, too, um, as a way of paying for the continued maintenance and upkeep of roads versus the new construction. Um, it's an interesting uh, concept. I'm not completely against them because it's a user fee. And I much more prefer um, systems of taxation that tax the actual user of that service uh, or need, um, and where it's more directly connected and it's visible. One of the things I really dislike is taxation that's not visible. You know, that's you know, like the value-added tax is a completely invisible tax. Corporate income taxes are invisible taxes to those that actually pay it because it's built into the price of a product you purchase. You don't actually see that this many dollars out of the hundred you spent on an item actually went to the federal government in an income tax and to the state government in a corporate income tax. So at least tolling is a very visible form of taxation and as tolls get increased, the pressure on politicians to keep the tolls low. You know what I mean? Yeah, there's that connection there. Where gas taxes aren't necessarily as visible to the general public. You kind of see it in the increase in your price in your in your gasoline. But if, if it were up to me, I'd pass a law where the receipt when you get your gas uh, gasoline has the 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 cost of the gas, then the tax added on to it, and then a total where you'd see the federal gas tax, the state gas tax, and if there was a local gas tax, it would be listed separately. And there'd be the price per gallon pre-tax and the price per gallon post-tax posted at, at stations. But you know they do that right now, so people don't realize how much tax they're already paying for roadways. So tolling for local roads, and, you know, I don't, I'm not necessarily completely opposed to it. I don't think the county is going to go there anytime soon because I, I do think the public's generally opposed to tolling and it doesn't have broad public support. And I don't think I'd do it without going to a public vote first. Yeah, well, what makes me kind of wonder is, uh, well, like what they're doing in Portland and depending on what vehicle you're driving, it increases the cost of goods and everything. Like when I was truck driving, they say, always carry a $100 bill with you, which is more now because that you may need that for going through a toll booth. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, you know, what I knew on the East Coast, you know, whether you're going through the Chesapeake uh, Bay Bridge uh, or the, or going up uh, through the Pennsylvania Turnpike or the, you know, the Delaware Turnpike or the New Jersey Turnpike. You know, there's the old famous joke, I'm from New Jersey and, and you know, what exit? <laughs> but I'm <Yeah>. bummed. Yeah. <laughs> You know, where they're referring to what exit of the Jersey Turnpike. <laughs> so, you know, um, that, that's really um, kind of a, a 
you know, what we're used to in other areas of the country, we're just not used to it in Oregon because it hasn't been a practice in Oregon. And actually, you know, I think the legislature hadn't really allowed it. Um, what I hope, though, is it state, you know, that because it's being generated from the driving public, it continues to be covered under the uh, constitutional um, preemption of, of or guidance, I should say, that, that, that makes any funds generated from the driving public have to be spent on roadways. They can't take that money and use it for something else. Um, and I, I believe that those tolls would, would be uh, part of that uh, section uh, of our Oregon's constitution that basically says if you generate, you know, whether it's gas tax, car registration fees, if it's generated from the driving public, it has to be spent on roadways. <coughs> and uh, I think that's really important that that has to stay in place with, with any tolls. But it is a user fee. And it is basically getting the user of that roadway to pay directly for the maintenance of that roadway uh, in a very visible way. And I truly believe visible taxes are the best ta form of taxation. It's one of the reasons why, contrary to a lot of folks here in Oregon, I actually like sales taxes because people know when they're paying a sales tax. People can see it. The other thing is sales taxes actually encourage savings where income taxes discourage savings. Um, so if you well, know, I can't agree on that if it was on a federal level. Um, yeah. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but oh, um, Jesse Ventura's uh, suggestion was get rid of the federal income tax, change it to a federal sales tax. The reason for that is because at the current system, the government has your money before you do. The other way, it puts them more in touch with the actual spending of the people or, or the actual economy. Yeah, yeah. And it'd be, there's all sorts of economic studies on the benefits of, of a national sales tax. Uh, anyone that's really interested in that topic, go to fairtax.org, which is one very specific proposal on how to enact that federal um, national sales tax and repeal the 16th amendment at the same time hopefully um yeah so there couldn't be an income tax but can you imagine the economic boon it would be because if you withdrew if you would if you stopped all income taxes that would include corporate already under the the tax cuts that were made to corporate income taxes under the trump administration is causing a lot of onshoring of capital that was kept offshore to prevent the the, U, the high U.S. Um, corporate income tax from taking bite out of it, and suddenly there's money pouring into this country. It's one of the things that's driving the economy so hard, and, and people are reloc. You know, there was this trend to um, merge with a foreign company and move your headquarters somewhere else to to be under a different taxation. You remember, you know the whole Daimler, Chrysler, and everything else that happened as corporate taxes got higher and higher in the U.S. Yeah. Ireland figured that out pretty early when they dropped their corporate tax down to 15%, and they had that huge, you know, the huge Irish boom that happened back in the 90s when they made that cut. You know, can you imagine if we go to zero, what that's going to do for the U.S. economy and replace that with a sales tax instead? 
Yeah, but you know, they're they're not going to get rid of the of the income tax. You know, so the it, it tax offers, goes away. It offers politicians too much power. Right. One of the things about if you had a broad based low sales tax that didn't have a lot of that didn't have any exemptions, so that the politicians couldn't play with that. One of the things that happens with state uh, sales taxes is they start inventing different things that are going to be exempt, and they start talking about whether some you know snack foods should get charged a sales tax and then there's a lot of um, uh, lobbying money that goes into whether your food's considered a snack food or not a snack food and whether it gets the sales tax or not and you know this particular thing should be considered not taxable like feminine hygiene products shouldn't be taxed and and you know uh, this item and so there's a lobby group interested in that pay you know contributing money to people's campaigns to try and get people elected that support their particular little piece of tax legislation. Well, that's the way the income tax code's gotten to be, you know, you know what is it, about 10,000 pages now, if not 20,000 pages, our federal income tax code. Yeah. Um, because people can make lots of money from a single, single change in a single sentence in a tax code that would benefit a certain industry in some way. And, you know, that gives politicians a lot of power and they don't like to give up power. At least, you know, the ones that like power, there's there's a few out there that are really principled that are fighting for the fair tax and all that and are willing to give up that power uh, on the national level. But for the most part, and, and of course the K Street folks don't want to give up that. You know, that's that's most of their job is fighting for changes in the federal tax code. You know, so they're they don't want the fair tax to go through because it might empty the offices of K Street. And you can imagine the whole tax preparation industry doesn't like the fair tax. Because if you get rid of income taxes, you're not gonna have to struggle through that 1040 and all the extra forms you have to struggle through, you know, <laughs> it, you know, I, I've got, you know, my wife owns a business that we have as a, as a S corp and um, we have to declare that income. We have rental property and we have that income. And so we get into all these various extra schedules we have to file. I have to purchase a, piece of software every year just to keep up with that. So that's what the fair tax might get rid of. So think about all those dollars going to other places. Well, we're about out of time for the Bo's Nose Show this week. Thank you for listening to me when I've been sleep deprived. Hopefully the puppy's kind of getting used to things here and I'll be a little bit more uh, coherent next week and a little bit better prepared next Wednesday for the Bo's Nose Show here, 4 p.m. live. And, of course, you can always listen to us archived on the Internet anytime you want. Thank you for listening to Bo's Nose Show. Hope you have a great week.